0: You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about child abuse. Joining me is Dr. Cindy Christian. Cindy is an attending physician, holder of the Anthony Latini Endowed Chair in the Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect, and president of the Alumni Organization's Board of Directors at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining me today, Cindy. Katie, it's a pleasure to be with
1: you virtually.
0: Right. In the time of COVID, we are social distancing for this podcast. So we are not in the same place, unfortunately, because I love hanging out and talking to you in person. (laughs) I wish I wish I could have seen (laughs) you today, but maybe we'll do another one in the future. The reason that we were doing this one now is that child abuse in the setting of a pandemic is even more of a concern than it might be on a typical week. So Let's just set the stage a little bit in terms of how common is
1: child abuse in general. Child abuse is unfortunately incredibly common. And the abuse that really happens to children all around this country is much greater than the abuse that is recognized by um, adults who would report it to Child Protective Services. It's much greater than the abuse that pediatricians and other physicians recognize. And it's much greater than the abuse that ultimately ends up in national statistics. Statistically, Mm -hmm. in the United States, more than 3 million reports are made to child protective services agencies around this country annually. But again, most of that abuse really goes unrecognized and children suffer the consequences of abuse day in and day out all around Mm -hmm. this country.
0: And so we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of the reports that are made.
1: We are, and you know, as you said, in in this kind of time of a pandemic, there's real concern that children are even more invisible than they usually are. Children are usually in school, uh, where teachers can see them, and we know that teachers are a really important source of reporting of suspected maltreatment and identified maltreatment because they see children on a daily basis. And now we have children who are staying at home because it's important for public health, but maybe at risk for lots of different reasons.
0: And pediatricians are also another source of identifying potential abuse or neglect. And we know that children are being encouraged, like you said, to stay home. We're only seeing essential visits. So for us, it's also harder to catch some of these children who we might otherwise have seen in clinic.
1: That is very true, and um, I can tell you that over the past few weeks, the number of consults that we've seen in the hospital, and this is anecdote, but I've been doing this for a really long time, and I can see that the number of consults that we have in the hospital has gone down significantly. And that indicates to me that there are children out in the community with some more minor but notable or significant, clinically significant injuries that pediatricians aren't seeing because they're not seeing babies and young children in their offices. And there are other injuries that teachers are not recognizing and reporting so that we can evaluate children. And I do worry that once our social distancing has ended, we may see a surge in the number of children who have injuries from child abuse.
0: So, what about a pandemic itself puts children at more risk
1: of abuse? I think that the factors that increase the risk for abuse are exaggerated or heightened at the time of a pandemic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know anybody who isn't stressed by what this world is going through right now. Right. There are families who have kind of new crises in terms of finances in terms of work. There are parents who are sick, who don't have anyone to turn to to help them with the care of their children. There are families that may not function at the highest levels who are now home altogether, 24 hours a day without any kind of outlets. Mm -hmm. There are children who are no longer going to school and who have to learn at home. And parents are being asked to help with that virtual education. And that can be frustrating for parents. So Mm -hmm. I think the financial stresses, the health stresses, the educational stresses, the stresses of altered routines are in incredibly difficult for most of us. And for most families, especially those with a number of young children, and you're cramped in a house all day long with kind of little outlet for normal activities, and that would stress anybody. Mm -hmm. And for most of us, we kind of find, I hope, healthy outlets for that frustration and stress. But for a number of families, children can get frustrating, They can get irritating. The situation is stressful and parents can unfortunately lash out. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of child abuse is really parental stress and frustration combined with children who are kind of misbehaving Mm -hmm. because children misbehave. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can be really a dangerous formula.
0: Right. And so as you said, it's a lot of the same risk factors that are always there, but they're just heightened now during this pandemic because we're all being challenged more than, than our usual circumstances. So it's exaggerating what's already there. It's exaggerating
1: and children are not visible to us. Right. It's kind of a combination of those two factors.
0: Right. So we're missing a little bit of the safety net that we're used to having to catch these children and and get them help. Absolutely. So for pediatricians who are trying to identify abuse and neglect, what are some of the historical elements that should raise concern for possible abuse?
1: Sure. There are many clues that we look for. And when I teach, I always remind everybody that if we're thinking about physical abuse, and we can talk about other kind of forms of maltreatment as well. But if we're thinking about child physical abuse, we first start with the premise, which is true, that the vast majority of injuries to children are preventable accidental trauma that have nothing to do with child abuse. Mm -hmm. And so what we are asked to do as pediatricians and sentinels in the community is to identify the relatively few children whose injuries are not so obviously the result of accident. And the way we do this is kind of really multifold. The first thing is we think about the history. So we think about injuries where there's a significant injury, and there is no history of any trauma, or there's a denial that there's been any trauma to the child. Mm -hmm. I was just on a call where we were reviewing a research project where we looked at chief complaints of children who came in with child abuse. And it's notable that at least half of the children who come in with abusive injuries don't present to us with any history of trauma. Hmm. They come in with medical symptoms or they come in with vague symptoms Mm -hmm. um, and nothing that's related to injury and specifically nothing related to child abuse. Mm -hmm. So we want to identify injuries where there's no history of trauma. We want to compare the history of trauma to the injuries that we're seeing. Kind of minor falls usually result in minor injuries and minor falls that result in major life-threatening or multi-organ injury would always be something that we would be concerned about. Mm -hmm. If the history changes dramatically, we would worry about that. If there was an unexpected and unexplained delay in seeking care, although Lots of times parents don't bring their children in for medical care for many reasons not having to do with child abuse. And then finally, we sometimes see children who have so many injuries that it's just obvious Mm -hmm. to us that this child has been a victim of child abuse. So that's the kind of historical things that we look for. And then we look for certain patterns of injuries, constellation of injuries, and we look for any injury in a non-ambulatory infant. And I, I always try to stress that. We have a, a mnemonic that my colleague Mary Clyde Pierce developed of ten four. And that is we look for injuries or bruising on the torso, the ears, the neck in children who are less than four years of age to heighten our awareness and concern mm. or any bruise in a non-ambulatory infant, a baby less than four months. Mm -hmm. We look for frenulum injuries. We look for subconjunctival hemorrhages. We look for subtle bruising at the angle of the jaw or the fleshy part of the cheek. We look for bruising in places that we don't expect it. We look for injuries that don't make sense with the histories that are provided.
0: And that's because these sort of sentinel injuries that you're describing aren't easily caused by other common methods that children end up getting bruised by, right? So if you're typically uh, a preschooler running around and playing and you're rough, you bruise your pre-tibial area or maybe your knees, right? But you're not usually bruising the other areas that you just mentioned.
1: Sure. Most of, well, first of all, as pediatricians, we love seeing little bruises on active toddlers and school-aged children who are running and playing outside. And you're right. They bruise themselves over bony prominences mm-hmm. so that when we see bruising in places that are a little unusual, in unusual distributions, we always want to be concerned. And if you think about your practice, you know, it's really uncommon to see any bruise on a young infant. Anytime you see Mm -hmm. bruising on a young infant, it should always raise your awareness of possible abuse. And I've seen so many children over my career that have had subtle bruising that went kind of undiagnosed as trauma only to see those children return to the emergency room to be re-hospitalized with severe, sometimes life-threatening and sometimes life-ending injuries. So any subtle injury on a very young child should always be evaluated for the possibility of abuse. Why
0: do you think that bruising on young infants is not recognized as abuse sometimes by pediatricians? Is it a lack of understanding that that's a risk of abuse, or are they usually explained as being something else? Are we mistaking it for another
1: diagnosis, I guess? I think all of those things are true. First of all, as pediatricians, we're trained And our experience is that we rely on parents' history to help us make our diagnoses. We rely on parents every day, all day long. Mm -hmm. And we don't come to any encounter assuming that the parent is not telling us the truth or that the parent might not actually know what happened and so can't provide us the truth. So we always have to have some bit of skepticism and awareness that we will see children on occasion whose injuries are the result of abuse. Mm -hmm. And surely if I'm a pediatrician and I see a a young infant who has bruising, I might think of medical diagnoses. I might get a CBC and a PT-PTT to make sure I'm not dealing with thrombocytopenia or a coagulopathy. Mm -hmm. In my experience, sometimes those tests are run they're normal, and then people relax because there's no medical disease. I also think that a subtle bruise really, in most instances in older children, it has no impact on the child's health or well-being. And we can easily forget that the same subtle bruise on a child who's very young can have very important implications. So I think sometimes parents tell a good story and they get past us. And we want to believe parents and we usually can trust what parents say to us. I think sometimes we erroneously think that this might be a medical disease and we chase that down and that's okay to screen for medical diseases. That's important, Mm -hmm. Um, but you have to come back if those screening tests are negative. So I think there are lots of reasons why these things can be missed. And and one other thing, nobody likes to think about a diagnosis of child abuse and nobody likes to bring that conversation up with parents nobody likes to call Child Protective Services. Mm -hmm. So it's so much easier, kind of even subconsciously, to just kind of ignore what we're seeing. And I think that happens sometimes too.
0: Mm -hmm. And in primary care, we often have a relationship with the parents. uh, And it can sometimes be hard to rationalize to ourselves that that parent could be a perpetrator of abuse.
1: Absolutely true. And the thing that I always want pediatricians to remember is that the person in front of you may not be the abuser and may not know what's been going on, Mm -hmm. or in some cases, may themselves be a victim of abuse and are too scared to come forward with what's going on in their household.
0: Right. That's an important point for us to remember. Yeah. So. In addition to bruising, we also see fractures as a presentation of abuse. What fractures are the most common, and what else should be in our differential if we're seeing a child with unusual fractures?
1: So we all know that, again, ambulatory children often sustain broken bones from accidental trauma. But we see children, especially in infancy, who sometimes present to us with fractures as either their presenting injury or in our evaluation when we may see a child with bruising or some other finding and we get skeletal surveys, so x-rays of the bones, we sometimes find additional injury and fractures. And, you know, we like to say that any fracture can be the result of abuse. I would say that long bone fractures, diaphyseal fractures of the long bones are probably the most common fracture that we see in abusive injury, although they're not specific at all. They're so common in both accidental and abusive injury that there's no specificity to them. Mm. Some of the fractures that we see that are a little more specific for child abuse include rib fractures, including multiple rib fractures, what we call classic metaphyseal lesions, so small metaphyseal fractures at the ends of the growing long bones. And then some of the more unusual fractures that we might see are also specific, but probably not as common as just diaphyseal long bone fractures. And then finally, I want to say that we see lots and lots of skull fractures in infants. And skull fractures are common when infants fall because they're top heavy and they don't have a parachute reflex yet Mm -hmm. and they don't stop their falls and they land on their heads. Mm -hmm. And we see skull fractures commonly in accidental trauma in infants, but they also can be seen in cases of abuse. So You know, I think once children become ambulatory, it's much more likely that they will have sustained an accidental fracture. And we really worry about those children who are very young and infants. And then finally, in terms of the differential diagnosis, there's a differential diagnosis for every injury that we see. And when we see children with multiple fractures, we think about genetic diseases such as osteogenesis imperfecta Mm -hmm. that can lead to fracture. We think about rickets, and we surely do see some children who have active rickets and fracture their weakened bones because of rickets. And then there are a number of more unusual diseases that we would consider as well.
0: In the age of COVID now, we're doing a lot of telemedicine and seeing our families that way. So as we would in the clinic, we can photo document in the electronic medical record. Why is this particularly important
1: in cases where we're worried about child abuse? There are a few reasons why documenting injuries are important. One, in our electronic health record, we can share information with our colleagues to really help with diagnoses. And so it's very common that we get calls about an injury or a finding and our colleagues call us to ask us an opinion. And in those cases, sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. I would say not always, but in some cases it really is. And it can help us kind of look at patterns of injury or a pattern of a bruise or location of trauma or identify something that makes something look like it's not a bruise or not injury. So I think it helps in our communication. And it also helps in documentation because many bruises disappear rapidly. And again, because these bruises can be sentinel injuries, they can be kind of, what we mean by sentinel injury is a minor injury that portends some potential future disaster for that child, right? A bruise is just a bruise, Mm -hmm. and that bruise is going to go away quickly. But if that bruise is an indicator that somebody's been harming a young infant and we don't do anything about it, that baby is at risk for further ongoing and, again, severe injury. And we know from our research and from our experience that that happens frequently in these cases.
0: And so you've mentioned a few times that we are mandated reporters, which we all know, and that we should report when we see things that are these sentinel injuries, so bruises in non-ambulatory children. When should our concerns, so sometimes you just have that feeling that something is off, that something doesn't feel right, maybe the story doesn't match with what you're seeing. When do we raise that kind of gut instinct of a concern to reach the threshold of reporting?
1: Katie, that's a really great question. Let's start with the fact that there are very specific federal and state definitions of child abuse. And every state has a different definition of of abuse. And you need to know what the definitions are and what the mandating thresholds are for the state that you practice in. But in addition, we all have our own personal thresholds. And that's really based on kind of how we were raised ourselves and what our beliefs are and maybe what our religious background is and what we tolerate in our own families. There are lots of things that go into how we define child abuse for ourselves. And I can show my colleagues examples where we would all agree that this is child abuse. And I could also show examples where there really wouldn't be agreement that this represents child abuse or that this represents something that needs to be reported and a child needs to be protected. So what I say to my colleagues all the time is that if you are seeing a patient, either in your office, in the emergency department, in the hospital, or now, even through telemedicine, and you let that child leave that visit, and then you worry about the safety and the well-being of that child, and you worry that maybe you should have made a report, or maybe you should have done more, then you've probably reached your threshold because you you wanna know every day at the end of the day or when your head hits the pillow at night that you've really done what you believe you needed to do for all of your patients. Now there are also resources. If you are unsure, you can reach out to colleagues at children's hospitals. There are child protection teams at most children's hospitals around this country and there are people that can talk through things with you and try to give you guidance. And you could also always reach out to your local Child Protective Service Agency and speak to somebody about kind of what they would recommend you do in in situations because things aren't always black and white and it's not always easy to know what the right answer is. That's a great tip that we should reach out to the child abuse experts that we
0: have in our communities. Also, CHOP has a pathway for both physical abuse, and sexual abuse concerns. And A Pathway can also have some helpful resources there, articles, and some just clear algorithms for people to follow. Absolutely. Cindy, I've heard you have these difficult conversations with parents before. So what advice can you give to primary care pediatricians about how to communicate our concerns about possible abuse to parents in clinic?
1: That's really always a really challenging conversation. And I think it may be even more challenging when you have a long standing, ongoing relationship with a family. Mm-hmm. Although that might not always be true either. So here's kind of how I approach this. First, I try to be as honest as I possibly can. So when I walk into a room, and again, kind of where I come from and a primary care doctor is a little bit different, but when I approach a family, because I've been consulted and asked to come in, I always introduce myself with my name and I say that I am a pediatrician on our child protection team and that we are consulted anytime there is a concern that a child may have an injury or an illness because somebody has harmed them. Okay, that, that's not apportioning blame to the family, mm-hmm. but we'll talk about that in a second. And then we just talk about what we're going to do. If you're a primary care doctor and you see something on a patient or a family or a parent gives you a history and you're thinking that this may be kind of an abusive injury, I think it's important to sit down and say to the family that you are concerned about X Y or Z whatever the injury is or the illness is and you can say to a parent I am concerned that somebody may be harming your child Do you have any concerns that anybody may have hurt him Mm. and I love that question? Because it's not blaming the parent. Mm -hmm. It's asking the parent to think about and join you in thinking about whether anyone may have harmed the child now Most of the time, a parent says no.
0: Right.
1: Okay? Even though they may think to themselves, well, maybe yes, Mm -hmm. they'll often say no to you. But it lets them know that you're thinking and you want them to think. Okay? And then if you reach a place where you know you're going to make a mandated report, you can say to the parent, I understand that you don't have any concerns about this injury or this illness, but I do. Mm -hmm. And whenever... I have a concern or a suspicion that somebody may have harmed a child, I have to make a report to Child Protective Services so that it can be investigated further. Have you ever had any involvement with Child Protective Services? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, in my experience, they'll say yes, Mm -hmm. and they'll tell you why. Okay. And I'll often ask if they have a worker right now, do you have, uh, are you, you know, involved with child protective services now? And if they say yes, I say, well, can you tell me who your, you know, your worker is? Can I give them a call? Mm -hmm. Okay. And parents don't usually say no, but I tell them what I'm going to do. I don't ask them. Mm -hmm. Now, I just want to say that you can always be professional. You never, ever tell a parent that they're to blame. They may say to you, I'm the only person who ever watches a child. Only me and her father only watches her. Then you know it's somebody like in that dyad that hurt the child. But you would never say, well, then it's one of you. Right. You would say, I'm just worried about the child's safety. And I want your baby. I want your child to be healthy and safe. And I know you do too. Mm-hmm. So this is what we have to do. Right. And then I tell them. now. Even not apportioning brain, being professional, being honest, parents are not gonna like that news. Mm-hmm. They're gonna get angry. They're gonna get defensive. They're really scared. They think someone's gonna take their child away from them. And in some cases, that might happen. So you have to be aware. That the parent is going to be really angry, really scared,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and not going to want this to happen. Right. And and you just have to be prepared for that. But it's just it's one of the difficult conversations we have. But you know, in medicine, we have lots of difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. And
0: like we started at the beginning of this, it's important because we know that child abuse is common and that many cases go unreported and that these can have life-threatening risks to the child. So this is an important conversation for us to have in order
1: to keep our patients safe. Absolutely. I agree with you completely. The last thing I'll say is if you recognize child abuse in its earlier stages, you can save a child's life Mm -hmm. simply by recognizing that there's something not right and reaching out for some assistance.
0: Well, thank you so much for teaching us about child abuse today and particularly why we should be more focused on this than usual, even during a pandemic. We are doing our best with our telemedicine to identify these patients and hope to be seeing them back in clinic again soon. Hopefully they'll have their safety nets of their teachers around them. But in the meantime, you've given us some great information for us to think about both during the pandemic and when things get back to normal. And thank you so much for being a resource to our patients at CHOP. Katie,
1: it was such a pleasure talking with you today. I hope that we can do this again in the future, maybe in person. And it's really been my privilege to be able to help all my colleagues for so many years. Thank you. Be well, be safe, and stay home. Thank you. You too, Cindy. (laughs) Bye, everybody. (laughs) Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash pcppodcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.